Welcome to the Magnify podcast. Magnify is a platform at the intersection of faith, feminism, and fashion. During these episodes, we have conversations with dynamic individuals that we hope will leave you intrigued, inspired, and informed. For many of us, our desire to provide comes from a good place and a commitment to excel in our chosen field. But as we build wealth, what does it mean to hold it lightly and be generous from our hearts to our actions? Moreover, in the context of relationships and marriage, how do we build generosity into the fabric of how we do life? A few months ago, I attended an event with my husband called Generous Journey, and I came across an incredible couple named David and Ellie Gardner, whose journey with generosity blew me away, and I knew I had to interview them for the podcast. David is a former CEO and board director of Atari, and previously he was the COO of Electronic Arts. And Ellie is a clinical psychologist and the founder and director of the charity Kids Matter. In this episode, we spoke about how their childhood experiences of both losing a father at a young age shaped longing to provide and have stability, the role of purpose and ambition in their careers to date, and lastly, how they've cultivated generosity as an important value that they continually cultivate in their marriage. Let's listen in. So I always like to start off just to give um, our listeners a chance to understand the type of people you are and the type of conversations you like to have. Um, so if you could have a dinner party with four guests and you both get to choose two, who would you invite and why? Well, I, you know, I, I guess since we're making this up, we can go backwards and forwards. Um, you know, I was sort of thinking, as I'm originally from the U.S., I would find it fascinating to meet um, someone like George Washington or one of the kind of founding fathers and to sort of see what life was like in that uh, that era. But also, uh, for me, I, I kind of grew up on Star Trek, so I would like Captain James T. Kirk uh, from the USS Enterprise, so that that I think would also be amazing and fascinating. So those are my two guests. Okay, whereas for me, I'm afraid I don't. There's unless it's going to be comedians like Michael McIntyre, then <laughs> just to make me laugh and laugh. Um, I would actually quite like to invite my maternal grandparents because I never met my grandfather, who was a German Jew who uh, hunted Nazis secretly unbeknownst to his family, and my maternal grandmother, who was a, a clinical child psychologist like I now am, and I only knew her for a few years. So I'd quite like to invite them to dinner. Amazing. Um, and how did you both meet? Ah, uh, no, that, that is a fun story. We were set up, we met on a blind date. Yeah. I'd just become a Christian um, a year after you finishing university, and I went to St. Michael's Chester Square and a lovely lady called Grace Wirt scooped me up together with my best friend and said, right, you need to get rid of your unsuitable Italian boyfriend and I will find someone for you. So she said, it took about eight weeks to convince me to go to this dinner party because you, you don't do dinner parties when you're 22, <laughs> do you? you? You just meet people. So it's weird to meet, to meet strange Americans. So she set us up. So she did a dinner party with David and I and David's housemate and another single lady. And then they all sat down one end of the room and leaving only two chairs at the other end of the room. So we had to sit together and get to know each other. It wasn't, it wasn't love at first sight for me. I think I thought 
I thought David just needed... Yeah, that's where I should be telling the story yeah, because yeah. it was love at first sight and three months later you agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were married a year and a half later. So, yeah, it was all quite quick. Because just before um, David was about to say something, initially I was like, oh, wow, for once a couple who their story is exactly the same, but clearly <laughs> a slight difference. Uh, it, 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 it mainly is. But yes, I very quickly realised... Um, Ellie was was very special, and I should make it a high priority to convince her that I was more suitable than the Italian boyfriend. So yes, I uh, I wouldn't disagree with what she said. <laughs> and how do you both switch off and relax? Well, um, some things we switch off and relax with together. You know, unfortunately, like probably many people on, on Netflix miniseries or something like that. But for me, I I've been switching off through cooking and, uh, and with lockdown, I'm afraid I'm doing the trendy making bread thing. Um, so, you know, trying to get my sourdough to taste right and all of that, but that I'm actually finding that it, it's demanding enough that it takes your mind off things, but, uh, and then you get to enjoy, you know, eating it. But you know. I think for me, it's, um, a glass of wine with a friend or, or, cake and coffee with a friend or walk with David. Being outside is a real way for me to switch off and relax. Just going for a long walk and having worship music blasting my ears, followed by a meal and either wine or coffee, just to, yeah, just to have some fun and, and to let, let go of the day. Um, so I always like to go back into, I guess, people's childhoods, because I think often our experiences there shape who we are and the way that we see the world. Um, so growing up, starting with you, Ellie, what was your childhood like and what were some of the values and experiences that you shaped the woman you are today? Um, so I have quite an unusual childhood in that I was born in England, actually down the road from where we now live in South West London. I was born in Richmond, but to a... Uh, to an Israeli mum who had, had been born in Palestine, as then was, to German Jews. And she, let, she met my father, who was originally English, but his family had gone to Australia during the war, so he was um, first-generation Australian. And they met in Israel, couldn't speak to one another, so they communicated in German. And then he asked her to marry him in, through the post, and they... They, she came to England without a word of English and they had two little girls. That was myself and my sister. And then he joined the, um, the UN and we started to travel, starting with Italy. So uh, we were based in Italy for a couple of years and very much in the international sort of bubble. And then we went to India for two and a half years, again, as expats, and then back to Italy, presumably for the next posting to then happen, a bit like a diplomat. But he died when I was eight. Wow. So um, my mum was only 33 at the time, so my sister and I were 10 and 8. And I would say his death was definitely an, something that shaped me because I think anyone who has experienced death early on in your childhood, life is never quite the same again. In spite of her remarrying two years later to a wonderful American man who, to whom she was very happily married for 33 years until he also died. But we ended up just staying in Rome and living in Rome. So I grew up in Italy. I went to an international school with 65 nationalities. And that has been, I would say, you know, it, it means I speak, I'm bilingual with Italian. It means I learn French easily. And it means I'm very comfortable in any 
you can you can pick me up and take me anywhere. But it also means I don't really have a strong sense of home or this is my land. My home is David and the kids and, you know, um, London is home. But I don't have that sense of belonging somewhere because I have three nationalities and was raised in a fourth country and then married into a fifth. So it was hopeless, really. But I would say, my yeah, it was my international upbringing and um, the death of my father that was sort of formative in those for me in my childhood. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. Um, and David? Well, we, as, as I'll explain, we have some common touch points, but I had a very non-international upbringing. I was, I was born in Southern California. Um, my uh, mother was a nurse, my father a school teacher, and my father also died when I was just about to turn nine. So um, that, that we would come later on to realize that it had a lot of common defining moments. And that, of course, was a, a big shock. Um, and I grew up very independent. My mom let me have a lot of uh, rope. She was very trusting. I was very much into, at the beginning, it was very early days of computers. I was interested in, in technology and, and uh, computer things. And uh, that, that's where I ended up spending my time. And I actually ended up not finishing school. I got so involved in the computer industry and working at a computer store, um, finding new finding that the adults had all this information i wanted to hang out with the adults that could teach me around games and computers and school i found very boring and it was they were into it was as we got into being a teenager you know everyone was into sex drugs and rock and roll and i couldn't find any any interest in any of that stuff and so my life took a big turn i ended up at 17 moving um to work at a startup company that was called, that became known as EA, some people know it as EA Sports. Uh, and, and I ended up starting there as, at age 17 and working there for 25 years. So as a, as a child, um, I grew up in, in the US and then at early 22, 22 years old, I moved to London. So my adult life has really been here in London. Wow. Um, so I think sometimes when I've spoken to friends who've also experienced tragedy at a young age, particularly with their career, um, there's then a desire to kind of take control of what they can take control of. Would you say that for either of you going through the experience of bereavement at such a young age, that that was a factor? For me, yes, definitely. Mm. I saw my mom have to do everything and she was brilliant. She did do everything. Mm. But of course, at a at a cost of you know stress and worry, and I felt that I absolutely had to to succeed, you know, in, in terms of work and economically, um, so that uh, my family would be safe. Because my dad didn't do a good job with that and and left us in ba- in a bad state. Um, so I think yeah, that's been a huge motivation for me, and probably you know makes me anxious even now. Um, just because you, know, you never, you know, the question, you know, we may end up talking about this later on, but when, when is enough, you know, and, and that, that's a difficult question for me. Yeah, I would say it's funny. I've never heard someone put those two things together quite like that before. So that's a really interesting question to reflect on. And definitely the message that I received from my mom was you must get yourself an education and a profession because do not rely on marrying a husband who may drop dead at any time because my father died very suddenly he was only 43 
and one minute he was there and the next he was gone. So there was, I, I think I've definitely embedded deep in my soul this idea that you just never know what's around the corner and you better be ready. And I think it does make me, you know, more, more cautious um, than I might have otherwise been for sure. Well, because um, I think the reason I put the questions two and two together. So what led me to starting Magfight was I lost three people in my family really suddenly. So my grandma, my aunt and my uncle. And I think that shook me up in many different ways. And initially I lost my childhood faith, I would say. Um, but I think it's made me very driven because I've seen how life can be taken away very quickly. Um, but I guess also underlying... I, it's been a journey to let go of the control when life has felt so out of control in so many ways. So I think, yeah, that's probably why I asked the question. Um, so as you entered the world of work, what were your views on success and financial reward? And has that changed over time? Well, I entered the world of work earning £8,000 a year. So I don't think financial success has ever really been the top. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist from when I was 14. And I think I don't think I ever thought of uh, success in financial terms. Success was getting onto the course and getting trained. So it was very difficult. It's even harder now. I'm very grateful not to have to try nowadays. But in those days, you did have to work as an assistant. We did get paid. Nowadays, they don't get paid. Um, you have to work for a couple of years. You have to apply for a couple of years. And this is postgraduate, obviously. And then, and only then, may you get onto the course, which is then a very grueling further three years. So we were paid something once we, I was on the course but that just was never but success wasn't defined monetarily it, definitely it, was, wasn't, yeah, it, was, it was definitely defined by you know which course you got onto and how well you did and then getting a job after getting a good job with eminent psychologists was the goal I would say not not financial for me yeah and I guess uh, and success was more financially uh, identified for me both because of the state of our financial affairs at home with my mom, but also maybe the kind of American culture. And, um, uh, yeah, so I, I just, I, I remember the day that I proudly was able to tell my mom, my salary, I think at the time was like $27,000 was higher than my dad's retiring salary of $25,000. And I, I thought, wow, that was a, that was a, that was, awesome. that was a milestone for me. Um, but, um, yeah, I, look, I, I think that there are all kinds of problems with that as well. And, and that's part of what, you know, I guess I'm learning is I, I try to mature and grow up and, and put ambition, uh, you know, make sure that ambition has a healthy role in my life and not a, uh, uh, not a destructive one. So David, leading on from ambition, um, in the context of your career, um, how important has ambition been and have, has there ever been a tension with your faith I would say there there is there has been a tension. Um, there has been a tension because, and, but and I have wanted to be ambitious, and um, I think the problem is when ambition is to make a lot of money. That's not a healthy ambition. I think if your ambition is to do something extremely well, um, to to maybe have. To, to, if you're building something to build it with great quality, if you're leading something to lead people with with great integrity and with compassion and with motivation, that is, is healthy. I mean, there are lots of ways to do things super well that then may also lead to financial 
success. Um, you can get corrupted uh, by by the whole money thing, and and you realize that it's a treadmill, and you you, you might not ever get off. And the, especially as we see with lockdown and what's been going on in the world, there are things far more important than money. And definitely, I've seen that that tension, and and it's it's tough, especially if you're if you've got a mindset of oh, I've got to provide, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. You know that that you do need to do those things, but not to the exclusion of all the other important things around family and relationships and a healthy perspective. Um, and Ellie, can you tell us how much purpose has played a role in determining your career as you've progressed? Yeah, I think it's been really fair to say it would be central to what gives me satisfaction and what gets me up in the morning is that I do feel what I'm doing is what I've been called to do. And I really am not interested in doing something that I'm not to do that isn't my purpose so I would say it's really central for me I would say what I'm doing now with work is is a is a sort of distillation of everything that has come before my faith my clinical training research my church all of those things have now coalesced into what I'm doing and that and at the center of that is very much a purpose that I feel called to which is to work with vulnerable parents and children um, so next, I want to talk about um, money and mindsets. And I loved when um, I went to the event, hearing you both speak, how kind of very much on the same page you were. Um, so in terms of marriage, how important is it to have the same mindset? Because even when we move to talking about generosity, I can imagine that as a couple, you both need to see that as a core value for that to work. So we, we end up in a more combined mindset. We certainly don't always start with the same mindset. And I think the, the commitment to marriage is also the commitment to uh, learn from each other and to have civil discourse and not, um, and I'm not saying that's how it always is, but I realize that, you know, the joy of being stretched, I, I definitely have more the many things that you were just saying, Elliot, that it's more true in my life because you have held that as a passion and it would not have been the case if you weren't there. So I think learning from one another uh, is critical. And so we have dialogue to get you know, to the, to the same place if that's a yeah yeah you can't expect to amazingly start on the same page with everything but you do have to be prepared to listen to one another and to have civil discourse about it and to journey together and maybe you end up in a third place where where neither of you Hmm. started but but i i would just say let's not be too too idealistic in that oh you have to start the same place but it's certainly the dream when you are you are in the same groove. You've 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 made some joint and you're both excited about it. You made some joint commitments and you're both excited about it. And then you get to do that kingdom work together is definitely way more fun than okay. I'm just going to do this anyway. I know you're not interested, but I, I'm just going to go do this over here. That's no. Well, we also do that too. I mean, it is more fun for that. us, but some things we do separately on that. Yeah. Time, but. yeah. Not entirely. I think, I think there are there are definitely couples that are more joined in everything they do hmm. uh, than we are, and then there are couples that are way more separate than we are. So I think we are both yeah, and somewhere in the middle. Amazing. Um, So particularly going through a pandemic, I think it's easy for us as humans to think that our security or safety can be found in money um, rather than God if we have a faith. Um, So as Christians, how have you navigated this tension? And particularly, I guess, um, David, you were talking about how um, the pandemic has been a time to kind of reset some mindsets. I'd love to hear what that journey has been like. 
fortunately, I guess I haven't come with a lot of stress about the work thing. I'm in, I'm in game gaming. It's all already a very digital space. So I haven't had to feel like that has gone through a major reset. And so I guess people who are doing that at the same time, <laughs> that, that it, it's a huge amount of stress. I have felt just kind of general background stress, even though I can't point to, Oh, this is a problem. That's a problem. Um, and I think when you carry a lot of stress, I know that I need to carry that back to God and through prayer feel like that's, that's not, not my burden. And, you know, you do, you do what you can with, you know, we've been trying to just take care of the people that we know, whether it's doing basic things like helping deliver food, but it's also financial things. If we have like financial ministry, we haven't stopped paying that, even if they're not yet able to do all those services, because we don't want them to be hit with cash flow because we're able to. So that's why, why would we, why would we stop? I think I discovered I was quite, because I, because I run a charity now, um, delivering parenting programs to disadvantaged parents. And um, the pandemic is going to really affect the funding for that because a lot of it comes from major donors. And I, I realize actually now I have a, an, an, it's sort of uncovering, the pandemic is uncovering my my security blankets are all wrapped up and I want that money in the bank. I like to see the money in the bank. I don't I don't like having to just trust that it will be there for our charity to continue. So it's actually exposing what you said earlier about the need to control. I like to see it. I'm not I'm not one of those people that's like, it's fine, you know, God will provide tomorrow. I, I believe that, but I have yet to be really tested, especially with money, um, to to see that. But I realise, oh, that is not my natural. That's not exciting for me. That's anxiety provoking. Um, so in today's world, there can be um, very much a culture of mine, and you know, if I've worked hard for it, then it belongs to me. But what does stewardship mean to both of you? Yeah, I, look, it's. It is definitely a journey. Uh, that that question is a great question, and I would answer it differently today than I answered it five years ago, and I hope I answer it more differently five years from now. Uh, but ultimately, um, and to illustrate that, by the way, I would say, you know, five years ago, I would have thought, well, I've tithed, I've given my money, uh, I've set my money, uh, given it to charity, given it to church, whatever the, and and so it's done. Now the rest is mine, and the journey that I'm on is to realize at all times. Um, I need to be a good steward of everything, and and this kind of division of tithing is is not, um, yeah, is not the end. It's it's only the beginning, and so you know the example that I gave of realizing, okay, we have because our finances were not yet interrupted by any of the the coronavirus stuff, we're in a position to then maintain all of our financial commitments to everyone that we're working with, and we really must take that very seriously because they depend on that. So I don't want to let anyone down because you might be able to, or because of, you know, it's kind of throwing them on to the, oh, there must be some government program somewhere you can have, I, you know, I haven't felt that's the right thing to do. Um, and yeah, you, you have to always have a soft heart. I think to listen, it doesn't mean you in all cases give, you have to be wise as well, but yeah, being a good being responsible and a good steward at all times, I think, uh, is, is, is required. Yeah, I would say, um, I, yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. I think it is definitely, 
a journey to loosen your hands completely that it's beyond just the tithe you know whatever proportion you're giving away it whatever's still in your hands still it needs to be stewarded and it's not yours to do with do you remember that story that we heard uh from that uh, u.s guy that gave his business uh to charity so he gave gave it to a charity He's, he's a incredible um christian guy and he when he's asked these kinds of questions, he goes, just to ask the owner, yeah. what does the owner want to do? <laughs> so he was referring to God yeah. and he's, he's just, you know, just be prayerful. He, he lives so comfortably with, with the, it's not challenged at all. He's, I just do what, I just do what the owner wants me to do. Yeah. He doesn't say, well, I'm the owner. And I think yeah. that that's a very uh, elevated position. I'm not there yet. I, I, but I can see how that makes sense. And maybe that is the right place yeah, to be, yeah, but yeah. that's a journey to, to, to let go and, and trust. Um, so, David, you mentioned things, your view and perspective has changed over the last five years. So I guess some of the experiences maybe that have shaped or changed how you think about this over the last few years. I would say uh, two kind of two major impacts. One is realizing that, uh, you know, <laughs> you're always meeting people with a lot more money and a lot more resource and um and being, I have a competitive streak. And so, and we lived back in the States for a while and I realized, oh my gosh, you know, this is crazy. The amount of money that people have and so many houses and planes and toys and everything. I thought this can't, this, this, this can't breed happiness and it can't be right. And on the other hand, there are obviously plenty of people that are far, far, far less. And, um, the, what I've realized is I have to not, I have to get off the crazy, uh, treadmill of more and more and more. And it doesn't mean have nothing, but it means don't let that be your motivation to be grateful for what you do have, be generous, uh, with what you have. And, uh, and, and it's generous with your time. It doesn't have to be your, your, I mean, if you have lots of money, sure, it should be your money too, but it could also be your time because for a while we were just giving money, but no time because we felt like, well, we don't have any time. Here's, you know, here's a charity that needs some money. Here's some money. But we've actually tried to do less of that and far more of how involved can we be plus be giving money um, because then our heart is really in it. And, and then you really feel, because the needs are basically endless. So if you're not, if you're not helping, um, I don't, you know, I think that it doesn't make the right kind of impact. And as a Christian, I also sort of think that, that God probably, the, the majority of what we're trying to do is change our own hearts from being basically somewhat selfish to being more thoughtful of others. And so the work needs to be done in the giver more than the charity that's receiving it. When, when we talk, when, especially when we look forwards and we're thinking about now, how to, what, what's the right thing to do for the kids? financially you know do we leave them is it good to leave kids money is it not good to leave kids money and i just have this overwhelming urge to just be free of all of it and just (laughs) just put it all i can totally see why this amazing guy that david mentioned he just gave his entire business to to god and the whole thing so he just so you're completely unfettered because there is that tension where money comes in and you're like, oh, well, how much of that do I want to give away? And you, there's this awful moment where you have to confront your own selfish, your own selfishness. Mm-hmm. And then when it's out of your hands, because you've put it in a, in a you know, charitable trust that so you can't touch it, then it's a complete joy because then it's just a question of who should you give it to? Mm-hmm. And that moment of kind of giving it away is, um, 
is difficult. And I just really hope in the next five years when we look back, we'll see how we have made life simpler, freer, and that it's that it's more joy in giving and less stress or worry about us and our needs. That's what I would like to move towards. Amazing. Um, so moving on to generosity, which is how I know you, um, can you tell us more about what generosity means to you and how, I guess, principles from the Bible have shaped how you see being generous? What I've seen is, you know, it's, the Lord loves a joyful giver. Um, wow, that's, that is exciting. It, actually, I, I started giving through sort of obedience maybe as a word, which doesn't sound very joyful. And maybe that was true. I, you know, I read that, okay, you shall tithe and you give 10% and then you would ask things like, well, should I give 10% of net or should I give 10% of growth? And you know, you're sort of like, actually you're missing the whole point. The whole point is give joyfully. And you realize actually when you get involved and you start giving and you see the happiness, the joy that, and, and what starts happening with the community and you realize, Oh my goodness, it's living selfishly is terrible by comparison mm-hmm. to living joyfully uh, and sharing and doing things together. And uh, that is, that's just fun. Yeah. And, and I see that there's a, a love that comes from that. And that is, is, I think it's trying to teach. I realize how, how basic we are as people. We, we need to be taught to trust, to, you know, to have love with each other, to help each other out. Uh, when you're, it just is a completely different feeling, isn't yeah. it? And I would say um, I'm very, I'm very, uh, maybe because I'm a bit serious in some ways, but <laughs> I'm very aware that we've been, we're really privileged. We've been given a lot of privileges one way or the other. And um, it's up to us to therefore be, generous so the scripture about you know to whom much is given much will be expected i definitely wear that it's not optional to be generous when when you when you have more than what you need so my next question is from your own experience what would you tell your younger selves about generosity uh so i feel like just get started um don't miss out on the joy and you know, you, there is no, there is no universal answer. You, you, I don't think um, there's a standard cookie cutter approach. People have to work this out in their own heart. I would say, even though I probably started being quote generous, not through being joyful. Um, when you get to a place of joy, that's definitely what you want to do. So I would say, don't give if you're not giving with love and joy. Yeah, I would say to my younger self is is that you're going to be okay. Yeah. Feels, you know, you're going to be okay. Yeah. And you don't need all that you think you're going to need. Yeah. Um, if you live on just a little bit less, not a huge... Yeah. People say, well, I don't have enough money to give. And we all do. We, we all... And lockdown has been proven how much less I need to spend. Right? I mean, it's yeah. amazing how, how much... And so just... And, and, and with that giving, start to build relationships and joy... Um, so that actually you'll feel far more fulfilled overall. Yeah. I think what I would like to add to that, um, I like that you're, you're going to be okay and you just live a little bit less, but I love this same guy that we keep referring to. When he was a young man, he and his wife and his brother and his wife who started this business together, they put a cap on their earnings and they said, anything we earn above that, it was, that cap was, was more than they, they earned at the time. 
But he said anything above that, we're we're just going to give give away. And so that just meant he was just never going to be a rich man. And the the company went on to be worth millions, right? Hundreds, hundreds of millions. Of yeah. millions. Yeah. But he never became a rich man. And his kids, had to, he's six kids, two of whom are doctors or something, and they. They live in a modest house in America and the kids all had to go to state university, even though he could have sent them across the world to go to all the best universities in the world. They didn't do that because he didn't have the finances. So there is a part of me that thinks, oh, I, I, I would have loved to have done that because it would have taken all this angst, you know, that moment I was speaking of, of the taking away of the money. That would just be taking, taken out of your hands and then you'd just be free and unfettered and you'd get more used to living at a lower standard of living. It's quite hard to go back, you know, when you've got used to doing certain things, foreign holiday, whatever it is, you know, or even a smaller, it's quite hard to go, to go back. So I, I, to my younger self, I'd say just, yeah, don't, don't get used to I don't get used to it. Although I am the cheap date in our relationship, that's for sure, just for the record. I like things that have electricity and batteries and spinning wheels. Um, So for anyone listening who might not know, can you tell us more about Generous Journey and how you got so involved? And in particular, why um, you're now really passionate about engaging a younger generation in the work? Well, we've got some basic things on the uh, on the generousjourney.org.uk website, but really, I think what inspired us uh, and and some friends to get this started was we wanted a safe place to be able to talk about generosity where there's no fundraising, and the church often does a great job speaking about what the Bible says about generosity, but unfortunately, all too often they're also needing gift day for their budget or the roof needs repair or whatever. And so I think everybody feels like, oh, okay, here it comes. You know, everyone, they're looking for some extra cash for the, for whatever. And it's true. We should be giving to that. So I'm not saying that's not uh, wrong to ask for that, but I think that people also just need a safe space to say, what does the Bible say about stewardship? How can we pray together and support each other and learn? Because it's something that, and, and there is a gift of generosity. So how do you, how do you develop that gift? How do you how do you exercise? That? How do you bless people with that? And not show off, but uh, but yeah, but also not be not be not feel bad because you've had a blessing, you've done something well, maybe you've made money, and then how do you um, how do you do that? Of course, generosity isn't. I, I stress it's not all about money. It is often time. It's talent. It's all you know. We know from the, from the Bible story, the widow that gave her two coins was the most generous of all because it, it represented basically all the money she had and she had complete faith and that is so beautiful. Um, yeah, so that's that's really why we, we, we got it started. Amazing. Um, and then Ellie, I'll ask you, how do you think a culture of generosity could impact the world for the better? And particularly given the way that the world will change as a result of this pandemic, why do you think that if we could be more generous, as David said, it's not just about money, that that would make a difference? Well, I guess, I think, um, I mean, the, just even the thought of that is 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 mesmerising in some way. Can you imagine if everyone was generous, even just a little bit, if, every, if all of us were just a little bit more generous, I think that would make an enormous impact in our daily lives in terms of even just thinking of things like road rage, you know, just reducing our, our the stress and strain that we 
that is so prevalent in the UK today and in the world, which a lot of it comes from being isolated and um, unsupported. So even if we don't even talk about money and poverty, just generosity of spirit, generosity of helping one another, looking out for one another. And that's what's been so amazing during the pandemic is to see all the initiatives that have sprung up to actually look after local communities and to be more mindful of one another. So I think I probably want to start there mm. and then assume that the money would follow because I think mm. that's the way around rather than mm. I don't I'm not so sure the right. heart always follows the money, but I think the other way around. Yeah. So let's just start by each of us just being kinder, more generous hearted. And I would say for me that's the thing I'm wanting to work on more. It's not even the giving away of money to well worthwhile organizations who desperately need it. But it's more, am I generous to the person I meet today? Am I generous with my time and with my attention and with my words? Those sorts of things I think are really life-changing. Amazing. Um, And so finally on faith, how did you individually come to faith? um, And how does faith impact your day-to-day life? Um, I grew up in a non-Christian household. So my mum was, as I said, she's Jewish, but she was not raised Jewish because of being born in Israel post the war. Um, They were all trying to forget about being Jewish. So we didn't, we were not raised Jewish and she married a lapsed Anglican. So we were not raised Anglican either. And then um, I was raised in Italy, which is Catholic. (laughs) Uh, I was basically told when you die, you die and there's nothing. So I got nothing until I went to university. I mean, and I used to sing in a choir at school. And of course, in Italy, there's millions of churches with singing all these churches. And I'd watch the ritual of people, you know, crossing themselves in the rosary and all this. And I began to be sort of really enraged and angry about all of that and thinking this is just hocus pocus but at the same time I had a deep longing for God because my father had died and I just couldn't believe that really that's it I would never see him again and and he's just he's just bones in the ground so I I longed for there to be God but then I was very angry at the sight of what I saw and I felt very excluded you know because the Catholics are also very quite in Italy very rigid about who can come forward for any of the communion or anything like that so it wasn't until university where i my best friend and I befriended two guys in the year above who were just so much fun but really different and they would play all the drinking games but they played it with Ribena and they just had that ready but glow around them we used to say and and when you asked them about why they didn't drink why they were having sex why they weren't doing all the things that we were all doing they they would just say, well, we're Christians. And I immediately got on my soapbox and so ranting on about that. But they were like, no, no, forget about church. Don't think about church. That's full of flawed individuals. Just think about whether there is God and, and if there is, could there be Jesus? And that was really compelling for me. But then it wasn't until a year later where I went on the sort of gap year post-university and went to stay with some American born-again Christians. And, and she was just Bible bashing me every night over dinner until there was no escape. And uh, and then we had a very bizarre sort of supernatural experience with the only thing I can ex- think of is that it really was an angel um, of being given a map by a complete stranger while we were in our car and at exactly the moment that we needed it before we'd even got out of the car. So it was very strange. And when we got back to our 
to our host. She said, well, of course, it was an angel. So anyway, long story short, we gave our lives to Christ that night. So I'm not messing around if he's sending angels. That's good enough for me. And then it, then it was quite a journey from there because um, actually that really upset my mother. Um, she felt I'd turned my back on Judaism, even though I'd never been raised a Jew. So it was sort of a, a, a bumpy journey from there. But I now, and well, I've no, I've not, I've had moments of doubt, of course, like everyone, and um, I've had my struggles with what does it all mean. But I don't want to have a single day where you know I don't feel like God is by my side and 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 leading the way. So He is absolutely front and central for me and everything that I do. Amazing. And my my story uh, was as a young young man at just uh, not actually not too many months before my dad died. Uh, I was uh, I went to church with a friend of mine and just heard uh, the gospel preached and they had an altar call at the end and I went forward to receive Jesus and that was uh, incredible and I remember the pastor coming to my house because I was only eight and to meet my parents to say, well, you know, this is, this is a bit young. And, and they were incredibly supportive. They said, if our son has made a decision, we trust him. And they, um, I became a Christian. Then my father died. Then for practical reasons, we stopped going to church. And then when we moved, I started working in a computer store and the computer store was owned by uh, the family that owned it were Christian. And they started taking me to church and Bible study. And that's really what the continuation of my faith. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I've therefore been quite young as a Christian. Wow. Um, thank you so much. Um, this has been absolutely amazing. And I'm so honoured and excited to release this um, with our community. So I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from this, go ahead and share this with them. Also, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps us out. See you next time. Thank you.